0: Hey, everyone. Before we get to the meat of this podcast, I just wanted to tell you that I'm going to be a featured guest at Roll20Con. What is Roll20Con? It's an online convention run by my favorite virtual table, Roll20. It's going to be run for 24 hours starting on June 3rd. That's a Friday. And it doesn't have just me. James D'Amato, Adam Koble, Nolan Jones, Anna Prosser Robinson, Margaret Crone, and so many other RPG gaming superstars are going to be there. You can get all the details at Roll20Con.net. I'll give you more updates as they come. All right, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Intercasso. If you're listening for the first time, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor, go give us a baller rating on iTunes. It helps us a bunch. Seriously, if you've been listening to the Tome Show and paying nothing for it, but you want to help support us, go give us a rating. It takes less than a minute of your time. In fact, I've started doing shout-outs to listeners who give us a great rating on the air. I'll read at least one new five-star review verbatim each episode and credit the person who left it. Make me say anything you want, but keep it clean, people. This is a family D&D news podcast. All right, here are the words of Ranger in the Sky with a review entitled, Great. This is my top five podcast. Very good host and very good content for D&D. Boom. That's it. Short and sweet. Ranger in the sky. Thank you so much. Let's get another shout out. This review comes from Paul Lightman. Possibly PA Lightman. Possibly Paige Lightman. Longtime listener and now panelist on the show. Whoever you are, thanks for this review entitled Great Podcast. The Tome Show is a great resource for the whole D&D playing community. You'll learn about conventions, new rules, interesting people, and what's coming up next. One thing I like about the Tome Show is that it's focused. Too many podcasts are just yammering. This one is information-packed and useful. Plus, it's funny. Well, thank you so much, Polateman. Be like the Ranger and Polateman. Leave a review, get a shout-out. Could you use the affiliate links at thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or DMs Guild to help support the show? You just click on the links in the show notes for any episode for the DMs Guild or Amazon. They're big banner ads. You can't miss them. And then, shop as you normally would. It doesn't cost you anything but an extra click or two, and it puts money into the Tome Show's gold pouch. We'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com. That's where Out of Print is available again. They're brick and mortar store that also exists online. D and D. Other tabletop RPGs, any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. My product pick from Noble Knight for this episode is the premium reprint of Dungeons of Dread from Wizards of the Coast. Get these four classic advanced d d adventures. Tomb of Horrors, White Plume Mountains, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, and The Lost Caverns of socanth for only 30 bucks. That's $10 off the asking price. Get it now at noblenight.com. Let's hear a quick word from them. Support for the Tome Show comes from Noble Knight. From Noble Knight.
1: Noble Knight? Knight? Knight?
2: Thousands of tabletop
0: gamers use a Noble Knight
1: to sell new and out-of-print games and products at a discounted price. Noble Knight will also buy back the game products you aren't using anymore. noblenight.com.
3: The brick-and-mortar online store where out-of-print is available again. Tell them the Tome Show sent you. I use Noble Knight. You do? I love it. It's trying to sound creepy there.
0: Today, we've got two awesome panel interviews. Panel one is talking about the latest D&D movie news, we have a director, and the fact that indie game developer NSpace is closing their doors. NSpace made the recently released D&D video game Sword Coast Legends, so you may have heard of them. After that, it's a really, really cool panel, one that I'm excited to share with you. We're discussing making money in the RPG business. Let panel one commence. Let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. What's your favorite fantasy movie? Uh, Rudy Basso, we'll start with you. What is your favorite
1: fantasy movie? Uh, I mean, I love The Fellowship of the Ring. I really do think it's a wonderful Delightful movie. I think the fight scenes are incredible. And the whole trilogy my favorite is definitely the minds of Moria. And I think it does such a wonderful job establishing the world that we are in. Um that's really hard to do in in a place where like elves and, and hobbits and other wacky stuff is happening. And right from the beginning you're there, you're in it, and you're just like taking it in and, and accepting it all. So I'm I think that's really impressive and I, I do love that movie very much. I'm totally with you. I love that movie a bunch as well, and
0: uh, I feel like I watch it at least once a year. So uh, good choice, good choice. It would be mine as well. Uh, Alex Basso is with us. Alex Basso, what's your favorite fantasy movie?
3: So my favorite fantasy movie, Star Wars. Uh, science not, fantasy. You know, science Which fantasy, Star Wars? Yeah, the crazy. first. Original.
4: Ooh.
3: It is just a great – I mean, I, I love – Empire Strikes Back, but I mean, I gotta go with the original. Here is just establishing this awesome galaxy that you want to just immediately jump into in an adventure, and you know, establishing the Force and Jedi and all that stuff. You know, Lord of the Rings, you just said, you know, it brings you into a world, but a lot of people already knew about that world. Star Wars, making its own, making up its own IP, uh, really interesting. Loved it.
0: Also a good choice, Star Wars. Great, great world. Great, great fantasy movie. And Greg Blair is with us. Greg, welcome back to the Roundtable. What is your favorite fantasy movie?
5: You idiots. Willow is the finest fantasy film. (laughs) Willow. (laughs) Yeah, come on, man. Willow, I mean, that's the best. That's my favorite. It's so much fun. Mm -hmm. You guys make very convincing points. You know, I'll... I'll... (laughs) Joking aside, in a goat voice, as much as I can do at this hour. But just, I don't know, man. You are good. Like, I just love that movie. Val yeah. Kilmer.
3: Yeah. Don't even know what that is. I um, like Val Kilmer a lot. What? Wait, Alex. Maybe is never, ever. Is, is this a horrible thing I just stated? All
0: right. I've, I've never heard of Willow. everything else we're about to discuss on the podcast. This uh, is now the Willow Hour.
1: So This movie yeah. is older than Alex. It is so older yeah. than I man,
0: think Yes. Uh, yeah. It's a great movie. Um, Val Kilmer, Warwick Davis. George Lucas involved. Well, so all good choices all around. All certainly worthy picks for a favorite fantasy movie. And the reason we are, of course, talking about fantasy movies is because the new Dungeons and Dragons movie has a director. And it is the same dude who directed... Goosebumps and Gulliver's Travels and Shark Tale. This has obviously raised a lot of eyebrows uh because the D&D movie already has a you know a, a script written by somebody David Leslie Johnson who Wrote, you know, The Conjuring 2 and Little Red Riding Hood. And now it's being helmed by this guy who has made um, a lot of what are movies for young kids, uh, often starring Jack Black in a leading role. And of course, we should say this guy's name. His name is Rob Letterman is going to be directing the movie. I think it's an interesting choice. We know about the Guardians of the Galaxy tone they said they're going to go for. So clearly, this guy has a lot of experience with comedy and I would assume that it's not going to be as oriented towards kids though maybe it will be maybe they're going for like a a PG rating and it's going to be super silly but maybe this guy wants to try something a little more mature, and that's what he's getting into. So I've seen a lot of people get upset on Facebook and stuff. And I think the last time we talked about the movie, Rudy, you were here and we were like, well, it's going to depend on the director a lot. What this movie h- – how this movie is shaped depends on who the director is, right? So, Rudy, I, I want to start with you. How? are you reacting to this announcement and sort of what are your hopes what do you think the best case scenario is with rob letterman at the helm
1: he's a competent director i think it's not like all of his movies are terrible terrible films like um uh, they're undeserving of of you know they're, they're not scoring five ten percent or rotten tomatoes he's a guy you know his movies have a lot of visual effects in them which is not something i personally prefer uh I don't want to see another CGI beholder um, <laughs> unless it's done very very well. I don't I don't know. I actually would like Jack Black. I think that'd be fun if he was in this. Mhm. Yeah, I don't know. It's not the guy if I was starting up a huge new franchise film series, it's probably not the guy I would I would think of. I'm not super duper upset, but it's just okay. It's like okay. Just like my reaction to a lot of his films is like, okay, that was a right. thing. Yeah, I
0: think I think that would be uh, – they're ultimately forgettable, right? You're not sitting around with your friends chatting about Shark Tale or Gulliver's Travels.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I've sat, I sat down and watched Monsters vs. Aliens, and I cannot I – mean, It's not a bad you, movie. It's not a bad – you're right. I remember okay. being like, okay, this is fine, but yeah. I could not remember a single thing from the – Like plot. I could not tell you a single thing from it.
0: One of the things that's weird is, like, you've got this guy who has written kind of bad horror movies, working with this dude who has directed forgettable kids' movies. Like, what is this movie going to look like? It's so confusing. When I think when it first came out, people were like, Oh, Ravenloft, you know, it's, it's going to be that. And then, you know, we got forgotten realms. It was like, well, it'll be some dark story, maybe the underdark or whatever. Look (laughs) who's writing it. And now it's kind of like, I don't know what to think of this movie. Guardians of the Galaxy tone. You know, uh, it seems like it's a little all over the place. So I wonder if there is a a more cohesive vision. I'm sure the script has probably gone through rewrites because that's just how Hollywood Mm -hmm. is. Before they pour a lot of money into something. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I really, I want to remain excited, but things are so all over the place with this film that I'm, a, I'm very hesitant because I feel like Dungeons and Dragons gets a shot to show the mainstream world that it's a really right. cool, fun time and yeah. worried about what it means. Uh, Greg, what was your reaction to, uh, Rob Letterman being named director of the D&D movie?
5: So out of the four feature films that he's got director credit on, right? um, I've only seen Monsters vs. Aliens, and you know, like like we said, it's pretty good. I was entertained. That's cool. Um, That was six years ago, so that's not a short amount of time. Uh, I was was looking at IMDb before, and his his feature films are like around six. Yeah, it's okay. It's like it's passable. I'm really wondering though. Like, is there someone at Wizards who's like, how involved is Wizards going to be? Is this guy going to have like complete creative freedom? Did they just license it? Like, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of asking questions here because I don't know if you guys know more facts about this one than I do. Like, if Chris Perkins was over this guy's shoulders and was like, yeah, no, nah, Wizards just doesn't like that. Or, you know, like someone similar. Yeah, you know, who cares who directs it?
0: Kind of that way. So so it's always hard to tell with properties like this how much creative control Wizards has given over to the studio. And in this case, the studio is Warner Brothers, right? They're a major Hollywood picture. So the studio I, I guarantee Warner Brothers has a lot of say. As far as what Wizards say is, that's probably a little more up in the air. And it sounds like they are trying to, across all their properties, have People who get into the branding of it all and say, like, no, Beholders wouldn't be distracted by you throwing a rock in the opposite direction like they are in that first movie, you know? Uh, So I'm (laughs) I'm guessing that uh, they're going to have someone a little bit more involved, but they're a small company – Uh, You know, I don't know how much say they're actually going to have versus Warner Brothers being able to say, but like, yeah, but like people love chainmail bikinis. So put a chainmail bikini in there, you know? So I don't know what Wizards of the Coast's involvement actually
1: is. I would assume very little. I feel like Warner Brothers is sinking millions and millions of dollars into this movie. They're probably not going to, you know, listen to a guy whose title is professional Dungeon Master or whatever, they're probably gonna go with their writers that they know and trust. Not to say that Chris Perkins wouldn't have incredible ideas and maybe even write a better script, but um when these with these big budget movies, the studios are mm-hmm. very, very like Close to the chest, and yeah, because they're pointing so
0: much money, that makes perfect. Exactly, someone get this nerd out of here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We got a movie to make,
5: (laughs) Jesus. Yeah, I guess that's great. Your
1: dice bag ruined the
0: take. (laughs) And, you know, it's also – it also depends on how things kind of shook out in that court case too. Um, Like I don't – they may still be working off that original agreement Wizard signed years ago. um, You know, Uh, that – so like Wizards' hands may be tied by people who came – Way before. So follow-up question, uh, since Rudy gave his opinion, how would you feel about Jack mm-hmm. Black being in a D&D movie?
5: We already know he can sing.
0: <laughs> He's the bard. Right? That's what
5: I'm saying. He's the bard. He's the bard. The bard could be some, some comedic relief there. I don't think I'd want him to star in it, though.
0: Well, you know, I think I think if you're doing a and D movie, right, there it's it's got to be an ensemble cast, right? Right. Um, so so hopefully they would do that, and I I agree. I would love to see Jack Black in like a comedic relief cameo. Um, but, you know, I don't know that I want him to be, like, one of the main party members We or or a hero, right, that we follow. Not I'm not nothing. saying you can't pull it off. I love School of Rock, one of my favorite all-time movies. Jack Black, yep. if you're listening, I love you.
5: Right. <laughs> not for nothing, too. I mean, 2000 Dungeons & Dragons movies had some really good actors in it. Jeremy Irons is a really good actor. Isn't that it, though? Marlon, we- no, Marlon Wayans is a phenomenal actor. He's just done lots of kind of goofy comedy. Like, go Are you watch. Talking
1: about the Shrug movie. What's yes.
5: The Shrug movie? Shrug um, go for watch a for a Dream*. Yeah. And tell me that guy can't act. He can. He can act a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, no,
0: he's amazing. He's he is amazing. But that
1: movie
5: right. was doomed
1: so from the script.
5: Right. It Was so doomed from the
1: director Courtney Solomon who is being credited as a producer on this new film.
5: No, so, it's probably just a holdover from, like, you get yeah,
2: a it is. Thing. So,
1: yeah, so hopefully he's not involved whatsoever, and it's just his name on the thing. But yeah, and he's the guy who got the rights for 15000 bucks, right? Oh,
0: it's crazy. Easy. <laughs> uh, Alex Basso, how do you feel about this announcement about Rob Letterman?
3: Uh, yeah, I'm going to kind of agree with these guys and be like, eh? Eh, I guess. I mean, uh, I think it's good in the sense that, I mean, if you look, he's done four movies, and all four of them have been box office success. So I'd like to think maybe that means they have faith in this movie, and they expect it, you know, to make some money. So they're putting someone who has a good track record on it. Um, But it really makes me feel like, obviously, it's not going to blow me away. Like, it's going to be probably a competent movie. That's enjoyable. and. Oh, maybe we'll bring in crowds like that it feels like they're be betting gambling on the strength of the dungeons and dragons name to uh oh. to bring in an audience and then know. give them an enjoyable experience but i don't know if that's going to work for the general audience fantasy movies have not really succeeded recently or i mean i guess like traditional fantasy mm-hmm. not science fiction like when was the last success the, Hobbit well, the hobbits you're right the hobbits
5: <laughs> Those movies weren't actually that good, though. Like, Yeah, but in, outside
3: yeah, of Lord of the Rings, like, what has succeeded recently? Harry Potter, I guess. Potter. But that's not really traditional fantasy.
1: Game of Thrones is so hot, uh, but I feel like that's yeah. going to roll into Dungeons & Dragons.
3: But at the same time, I mean, I just think of that movie Game that came Thrones. out last year with uh, okay. Jeff Bridges that was just like a complete failure. And there was like the Vin Diesel one, like fantasy has a pretty good track record of like being a failure. Like it doesn't get interest in the general sure. movie going audience and it just
1: flops. If a movie is competent as we keep saying and is set in a fantasy setting mm-hmm. then it'll it'll work. It yeah. should bring in the audience.
3: Maybe. And I mean it seems like this will be a competent movie hopefully yeah. based on I soundtrack. don't know Rudy. But 4 is a low, you know, that's that's a low sample size.
5: I think no. that's a very positive but potentially incredibly naive viewpoint Rudy oh a good movie will get an audience
3: uh. Uh, but I think a bad that's... movie won't get an audience looking at you Batman versus Superman <laughs>
0: I think that's very very true though. I like I agree with Rudy. It, when fantasy is good, when it's done well, it it draws an audience. When you look at the numbers for things like Game of Thrones, for The Lord of the Rings movie, Harry Potter, you know, like that's like some of the highest grossing film franchises of all time we're talking about here.
5: Um but you're also you're also talking about okay, so highest gross growth- Highest-grossing franchise. Okay, Harry Potter came off of a rabid book following mm-hmm. of high like kids, and then kids who had grown up on that. So young adults, money to spend. Um, Game of Thrones has HBO behind it, and it is completely different from what they said they're going for here um so pretty big literary base for game of thrones and then also the power of hbo and what they're willing to do and then what was the third one you said oh lord of the rings yeah like the biggest fantasy series ever
1: uh greg this is dungeons and dragons it's the biggest rpg ever 5e is really popular. you know what's you know it's gonna be a huge test
3: like to see how this will do is the warcraft movie
1: Yeah, good point. To
3: see how that does, like that'll give you a lot more of an idea of how this Dungeons and Dragons movie will do. Because yeah, I mean, I feel like there hasn't been a fantasy movie that you know isn't already extremely popular that doesn't do well. Yeah, there are also great movies in their own right, like the Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potters, but they're based on these amazing franchises. So let's see something that is moderate and on a big, you know, big platform like Warcraft. Like I'm, I feel like that movie's probably not going to be great, but we'll see how that does
0: and Hollywood Hollywood will watch that closely and will adjust the D&D movie accordingly. I can guarantee you that's going to happen when Warcraft comes out. They're going to be like, "Well, what worked? What didn't? Why why are people going to see? Why aren't they?" and they will move yeah. because they're, you know, Hollywood is an industry where there's a lot of followers. Um and you know, again, oh, yeah. I'm with Rudy like we're talking about an industry. It's not a role-playing games right is is certainly a niche hobby, but there are a lot more people who have seen the Game of Thrones television show, who have watched the Harry Potter movies, who have watched the Lord of the Rings movies than have read the book. So if you have enough of a literary base that it can get people interested in talking about it, you know, that's, that's yeah. really where it shines. And D&D certainly has enough people in the world who have played it over the years and enjoyed it or who have played video games, you know, who have played Baldur's Gate, who have read R.A. Salvatore's books that kind of thing, like, there's no reason it couldn't have the same effect because it's already influenced as many people, you know?
1: I would argue that D&D might have more of a household name value than Warcraft as well, just because there was such this weird uproar in the 70s and 80s about how it might, you know, I don't know teaching kids witchcraft, like, my mother knows what Dungeons & Dragons is. I don't know if my mother would know what Warcraft is. So that might help as well. I think it's just it's something people know at least
5: the name. I'm not sure if I agree with you or not. Because I think for folks that are older than us that you know lived through awful Tom Hanks movies about Dungeons and & Dragons and, and LARPers and stuff like that. And how D&D was the devil and it was a manual for summoning summoning things. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's the kind of recognition we're looking for here. But then you've also got, I don't know, did they have a D&D South Park episode? They might have, but they definitely had a World of Warcraft one. And World of Warcraft definitely has like t- television advertisements. I don't even just mean for the movie. I mean, they've had like Mr. T in a WoW commercial.
0: Well, yeah, you know? but I mean, I think if you want to talk about like, In pop culture, uh, you know, Big Bang Theory is the most watched comedy. While they probably play World of Warcraft, they've played D&D in multiple episodes, too. Gary Gygax was in a Futurama. Uh, in Community, uh, they played multiple episodes of D&D. So, like, D&D's in pop culture as well. I think World of Warcraft certainly had a huge fad and a huge following, and I probably, no doubt, has made more money than Dungeons & Dragons, you know,
5: um... I don't think you beat 10 million subscribers with D&D. Maybe my my sense of how many people play D&D is off. But The thing about the role-playing
0: industry is there's a lot of people who play for free because they use somebody else's books, because they use an SRD, or they use a starter set. You know what I mean? Like... Or, or they no. just
5: stole it, James. Let's right. not ignore the elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Or they stole it. Um, And it is a it is a small industry. It's a $25 million a year industry. But I think you also need to look at D&D as a brand. You need to think about the video games. You need to think about the novels. You need to, you know, like that money isn't counted when we talk about what the tabletop RPG That's brings That's true. That's very true. Part of the problem is like... It's in so many things, but people don't think – people who've just played Baldur's Gate don't think of that as a Dungeons & Dragons product. They think of that as Baldur's Gate. Uh, And so that's where some of the branding cohesion you've kind of got to get together and get on board. And it's up to Wizards to be like, hey, you love this and you love this and you love the Spelljammer comic and all of those things, (laughs) they all love the same thing. This could, you know, D&D was not as popular as it is now in the year 2000 when the movie came out, and it just stunk, and everybody thought it was going to stunk. And I don't want that to happen again, uh, because what's going to happen is it'll be another 13 years, 15 years, whatever, before somebody tries again. 18? Where are we? 16 years. How old am I? <laughs> uh, I just
3: want to comment on the Jack Black question that was asked before. Yeah, that's what I was uh, going to say. I do not want Jack Black to be in this movie, just because I feel like as soon as he gets in the movie, it's like everyone's going to look at it as a Jack Black movie.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Like, When was the last time he's really been like an ensemble
5: part? Tropic Thunder.
3: So like that's six years pretty, ago?
5: That's pretty good, actually.
3: Yeah, you yeah. had that ready to go. But I, I don't know, I just feel like yeah, Jack Black, uh, he just brings like this weird, wacky sense, and everybody's going to like assume so much about the movie when they go into it. Mm-hmm. With Jack Black in it, so I don't know. I, I'm not really. sure. Yeah, I, I just don't want him to be in it at all. I don't want anyone to go who hasn't. Who, you know, maybe they've heard of Dungeons and Dragons. Not to think like, oh, I'm going to go see that Jack Black movie about Dungeons and stuff. Like it's Dungeons and Dragons first, right? Not the Jack Black film.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. And and I that's how I feel about it. Right. Like I I love the idea of this movie as Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, when I think about this movie as Tropic Thunder, it makes me a little more like, well, that's a little too silly and over the top, um, you know. Uh, but it could be great. Like it, it could really be great, and it could reflect, uh, you know, if if they go real silly with it, it could reflect the way the game is actually played, as opposed to, <laughs> 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 you know, um, I think I think it does get silly at a lot of tables. So, well, we definitely want to know what people out there think. Hit us up uh, over in the show notes for. This episode at the or at facebook.com slash show. There was recently an announcement that N-Space, who made Sword Coast Legends, is closing shop. Uh, it sounds like they plan to put out their final Sword Coast Legends update, which is the, the Rage of Demons DLC, um, and, then, uh, and then they're, they're going away. Um, so, obviously, the three of you on the d and VNG podcast already reviewed Sword Coast Legends. If you've been listening to this show for any amount of time rudy has certainly made his opinion known which is rudy (laughs) don't buy sardcast (laughs) legend and so i think people got the message not necessarily just from here at the tome show but from other people saying the same thing and echoing the same sentiment N-Space has been around for 21 years. Uh, they're an indie game developer that's closing shop, so no matter how you feel about Sword Coast Legends, anytime a group of people who make games are losing their livelihood, it's never a good thing. Um, you know, and, and they certainly yeah, are... Had an ambitious vision for Sword Coast Legends that maybe this Rage of Demons DLC is going to fix part of. Uh, so, but I'm just wondering, how do you guys feel about the the closing of End Space? And uh, Greg, why don't we start with you?
5: I feel awful because I just, like you said, I hate to see game developers go out of business, and it's really hard to to make software and stuff that's cool and the people like, especially there's a lot of pressure with this kind of license. Right. And I don't know. I, I wanted this game to be everything they said it was going to be so badly. And it seems like that their whole studio hinged on its success, the continuing livelihood. So that's just, that's just rough, man. I mean, 21 years is not an insignificant amount of time for a game studio to be in operation. And now it's just, it's going to be gone. And unfortunately, I don't even think that the Rage of Demons is going to get sort of the original marketing was all about, of what they were talking about. So I don't know. I just hope that they can feel some satisfaction in, in this kind of last release mm-hmm. as, they, as they all go on to other stuff. <laughs> it's rough, though. It's it's really depressing. Anytime a studio closes and people really put their heart and soul to it, even if I am not like the game, you know, that's that's not fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I I agree completely. Uh, Rudy Basso, uh,
1: how do you feel about N Space
0: closing their doors?
1: I mean, yeah, I've been adamant that people not buy this game because I don't think it's a good game. That doesn't mean that I want the studio to fail by any means. I mean, these guys, twenty one years as indie developers. These guys were indie before indie was a thing. You know what I mean? To not be purchased by a publisher and still be out there doing just cranking stuff out and, and being able to make your own you know your own business that's super impressive so it's it's definitely a huge disappointment and hit to the to the industry yeah it's just i i don't know what to say if if money was an issue then that would possibly explain why we had delays and we had releases that might have been earlier than they should have been it's just it's just a bummer you know mm-hmm. uh, a bad game doesn't make a bad company they could have come back swinging and it Brought us something really cool, and they were making steps to try and fix what they the community was not a fan of. So it's just right. it's disappointing.
3: It's definitely a bummer. Um, I, like Rudy said, I think that probably explains a lot about you know how what exactly happened to Sword Ghost Legends. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we said it in our podcast: is developers you know never happy with their product, and I feel like Sword Ghost Legends must have been. Pro- you know probably a lot of disappointment for the people over there because it wasn't anywhere near what they promised uh you know in the marketing um and like you could kind of see the writing on the wall even like in the post release you know the news they updated like they they stopped doing their third community update which they promised So i guess they were still updating rage of demons but there was like no hype behind anything in the game so most I, I never see like any substantial numbers of it being played, even with the fact that it's had um, a free weekend and it's been on sale a bunch. So,
1: uh, unfortunately, is... have the price went from forty dollars to twenty dollars.
3: Yeah, and it still had a fifty percent sale from twenty, so it was a ten for a bit. I'm pretty sure, and it still wasn't selling well. So clearly, they banked on this being a platform that they could sell DLC from and keep them going. And unfortunately, that initial release just did not meet a lot of people's expectations and uh, unfortunately sank them. So I feel bad for the company. Uh, You know, it, it had, it could have been a great, you know, a good game. It's always disappointing when people lose their jobs.
0: I agree. So our hearts certainly go out to the people at NSpace and, you know, thank you to them, uh, for trying to make an awesome D and D video game. Uh, you know, and if you mm-hmm. out there have been enjoying it, uh, that's, that's great. And this is sad. Uh, so we certainly want to know what people think about N-Space closing its doors after 21 years. So again, hit us up over at facebook.com slash the tome show and, uh, over at the tome com in the show notes for this episode. Well, gentlemen, I think that is going to do it for this discussion on the Roundtable. Rudy Basso, where can people find you?
1: Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Rudy Basso, R-U-D-Y-B-A-S-S-O. Me and these two other guys on here have our own podcast called D&D V&G. We, yeah. we had quite a discussion about Baldur's Gate 2. It was so lengthy that we were actually going to split it into two parts. Uh, the first part should be coming out in a week or two in the second part we'll be out two weeks after so listen to that if you've ever played Baldur's Gate 2 I'm sure you've got it's a lot of like reminiscing about the stuff we really enjoyed And about some of the stuff that some people didn't enjoy. So if you've played it before, listen. And if you haven't played it before and are considering playing it, I also would highly recommend you listen. And also, if you're a person, I would recommend you listen. So please listen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And
0: Alex Basso, where can people find you?
3: Uh, Yeah, so like we already said, on the podcast. And you can also find me at Twitter, yo underscore Alex Basso. Mm. Uh, spelling is hmm. the same as Rudy.
1: You're, you're the there, last but I don't know what? if people can find you. On, uh,
3: uh, I mean, yeah, aren't you still even just like an egg? That, I mean, I drew a smiley face on an egg I found from Google, and that is okay. my new picture. Yeah, that's and that's
5: I love
0: that your picture is still an egg. That's hilarious. <laughs>
3: It's not the original egg, all right? I put some effort into it. Yeah, that's
1: Got nice a smiley photos. face and everything.
0: I put
3: more effort into it than it. Who else opened a paint file and drew on that picture? Huh? Any of you guys? You probably just snapped a photo of yourself or chose an old photo and put that up there. Yeah. I put some work into it. I just don't put that much work into my tweets. I'll admit it.
6: <laughs>
3: if you want to get
0: tweets from me and Rudy Basso, follow Alex Basso, who retweets us. <laughs> <laughs> i the number one retweet. Uh and Greg Blair, where can people find you?
5: I like Twitter. Twitter's fun. You can you can find me there and yell at me after you listen to the Ballers Gate Two podcast. Spoilers. Um you can check me out at N T S underscore Q P O P. Also, a special loving shout out to our boy Vegas, who is the V in vng Nope. Uh, nope. 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 Today. Not true. But Vegas and Greg, d and G. Check it nope, out.
1: Not it, nope. 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 Uh, they've convinced me that they are. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Man, you are so outvoted. They have a quorum though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> then they can edit it.
5: Three quarters majority. That means we can like make new amendments and stuff too.
1: <laughs> well,
0: uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the round table today. Thank you for having us, James. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. Now it's time for panel two, making money in the RPG business. Commence! Let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. Who is one of your favorite designers not on the panel? And we're talking, of course, about game designers. Uh, Mike Shea of Sly Flourishes is here. Mike Shea, let's start with you.
7: It's a, it's a tough question because you end up alienating lots of other really good designers. Um, but I, I have to go with uh, Rob Rob Hainso, uh, one of the two designers of Thirteenth Age, and uh, former designer of D and D Fourth Edition. Much because I think Thirteenth Age is an, a, a great system, and but a lot of it because of the amount of creativity he brings to it. He's probably you know he's maybe the most creative person I know personally. Um, and he, and he really, in, in, in doing some of the articles, uh, or, you know, some of the writing that I did for, for Pelgrin, um, I got by far the best feedback I'd ever received, like most useful feedback I'd ever received, um, from him on an article that I wrote for them, um, which is sometimes hard to get. And he spent, you know, he spent an hour on Skype, you know, with me going over the article and, uh, yeah, I learned more in that hour than I think I'd learned in years of writing that kind of stuff. So he's, he's my top pick.
0: Uh ah, he is a great pick, has many, many great things have come out of his brain, Uh 13 page <sighs> being a, a crowning achievement, certainly. Um, so uh, I have no qualms at all with that pick, except for the fact that you alienated
7: Jonathan Tweet. I can't believe Yeah, exactly. It. Right. <laughs> I alienated. That's I said you got to, you know. Jonathan, a great guy. I don't flourish. know him like, <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't meet him like I meant though. <laughs> Uh
0: And, of course, the question is, who is one of your favorite designers, not your favorite Okay, designers. excellent. He is
7: definitely one. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly.
7: And exactly. probably, probably my yeah, top <laughs> pick. <laughs> Well, now you're alienating people, and I have not
0: forced you to do that. Uh, Neil Powell is with us. Neil, who is one of your favorite game designers not on this panel?
6: Well, I didn't like that that was the caveat that you put on here, especially once I found out who was on the panel. (laughs) But right now, for me, it's Rich Howard because I support him on Patreon, and I don't think in my wildest dreams I would have gotten so much great content from supporting someone on Patreon because that's not – I mean that's not my express purpose to go do that. It's, yes, I want more content, but more so I want to help support someone. But he has definitely outweighed my support with his content. So I don't know if I should be giving him more money now. I'm not sure how all of that works, but definitely Rich Howard and all of the ridiculous underwater stuff that he gives.
0: Yes, Rich Howard, uh, who is a sometimes panelist on this program, but not a panelist today. Uh, great choice, great choice. Uh, we will, of course, you know, we'll link uh, him in the show notes and uh, his Patreon. So if people want to check that out, they totally can. Uh, and uh, new to the roundtable today, Richard Zaius, uh, uh one of the co-founders of Roll20 is here. Richard, how are you?
2: Uh, I'm good, James. How are you?
0: I'm good, I'm good. Richard, why don't you uh, <laughs> let the people out there know, since this is your first time, a little bit about your background with role-playing games, kind of. How long have you been playing D&D? And- oh, God.
2: I didn't know I was going to answer that question. Uh, <laughs> honestly, not very long compared to most people in the, in the, in the hobby and in the industry. Um, I think the first role-playing I play, game I played was uh, 2006, 2007. Oh, nice. Uh, so I was well into adulthood before I, I started rolling dice. Excellent. Um, and uh, it was 4th edition, it was my first game I played, and I still have a special place in my heart for 4th. I've played tons of systems since, so I mean, once you, you fall in love with it, it's hard not to... Yeah. <laughs> Anybody yeah. I talk to who's ever started, they just, they don't stop, they just, some iteration or another, they, they're they always role-playing. So. Yeah, yeah, you just keep going, and the people who have stopped are usually very sad about it. Uh, very sad, yeah. Why? which is one of the reasons why Roll20 has been so successful people who groups are falling apart, they've been able to get them back together again, which is... <laughs>
0: totally, yeah, yeah, and that's actually the story, uh, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but that's the story of my group from college. Uh, we now play together every week, um, and uh, and Roll20 uh, is our virtual tabletop of choice, so thank you for founding that. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's great.
2: I mean that's what, I mean, really, we, we played our game in college, and then um, you know, we all moved away, and you know, got married, and at boring jobs you know <laughs> or uncreative uh, and then we wanted to play again so then we had to find a way to do it so that's where uh, my favorite designer which was, I will have to go with um, the lead designer of Dominion is Donald of just because Dominion has been like my playing it like every weekend uh, with with friends in the past like a month so I'm just like just like in my bloodstream it's just like I'm on blogs reading articles and strategies and stuff like that so replayability
0: yeah dominion is a great game <laughs> super super addicting too um yeah. so uh yeah yeah that's a great great choice for a designer uh sean merwin is back at the round table sean who is one of your favorite designers not on the panel
4: well you know how if you're asked what your favorite song is it's usually like the last song you heard I have to go with Phil Vecchione and Chris Nizak, who are two people I work with at Encoded Designs, simply because they're the last people that I've been designing with. And they're doing great things with Fate, with Apocalypse World, with D&D right now. And I'm very excited about some of the projects that they're working on, which I will be working on as soon as they're done with their section. So that's kind of where my brain is at right now.
0: John Merwin is also one of the great... Game designers out there. You know, with that in mind, we're going to talk a bit about this crazy industry. I think a lot of people uh, consider themselves at the very least amateurs because they are dungeon masters and probably have created some stuff for the game at some point. So, you know, everyone fancies themselves a game designer in some way if you're a dungeon master, right? um so before we get started and dive super deep into the industry let's just go around the table real fast and let people know what is it that you do in this world of rpgs because we've got people who do all kinds of stuff that has you know money making potential uh so mike what do you do good um, question
7: mike what do you
0: do <laughs> oh, no, nothing
7: yeah. you caught me i don't I've, it's all a big lie um <laughs> So one of uh, one of the tricks that I've sort of picked up was how to have all of the different things that I do sort of cycle into the others. Mm-hmm. Um so I started off with you know Sly Flourish the blog and and the the D and, uh, the Dn the D&D tweets on Twitter and uh you know from that um you, you write, writing enough of that, that I I I I got lucky enough to get picked up for some freelance work and one of my little secret tricks was I would often in the, in the bio of the freelance work linked to my own site. Mm-hmm. So then people that wrote the article would be able to get back to the site. And then on the site, of course I'm linking back to the article. And then I might write like a book and I mention that in the site and on the articles and the, and the book then talked about the, site and the articles. So there was, everything sort of kept spiraling into the next project and every one part of it seemed to boost the other parts of it. Um, but on, so on the, what I do, I do lots and lots and lots of different things, right? I'll, I'll do everything from, you know, I do a D&D tip on Twitter every day. Um, I've got thousands of them that I've done now. I write a blog article every week. Uh, I do a, some freelance work for a bunch of different RPG companies. And I write my own kind of longer form stuff uh, on top of, you know, running two weekly D&D games, uh, one or two monthly D&D games, and doing all of the the background stuff for that. Um, and all of it kind of works into the other parts of it.
0: And it it should be noted, I think, on top of this, and we don't have to get into the specifics of what you do or anything like that, but that you also have a full time job on top of all this.
7: <laughs> that's, that's the hobby.
4: <laughs>
7: <laughs> I come home from work and say, "I got to get my five hundred words in today." <laughs> I sit down with my computer and get my five hundred. <laughs> how how did how did the, how did you how did you get started, Mike? I can point it back to a single. Uh, podcast that uh, a pair of bloggers who were kind of big in you know, big back in the I guess in the 2007 ish timeframe. Uh, a fellow named Merlin Mann who ran a website called 43 Folders, and another guy named John John Gruber who runs a website called Daring Fireball. And I'd been following both of their blogs for a long time, and they did a podcast, or they did a I guess a seminar at a show, and talked about blogging, and you know, as as two guys who made their living off blogs you know how do you get successful at it and one of the things they said was they they were really big on focus like how do you pick a really narrow focus and stick to that focus and become the go-to person for that topic and I said so I want to write about fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons advice for dungeon masters like that's going to be my focus and and you know and then the rest of it is you just keep doing it right I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and wrote. Um, so that's kind of how I got started. Yeah, that was my idea. And I loved fourth edition. I love the hobby enough. And every time I've had a hobby like this, and I've had a bunch of my life, I always end up like kind of getting pretty deeply involved in them. Uh, so this is just another one where that happened.
0: So Richard, uh, what is it that
7: you do in the hobby? Uh, obviously, we know
0: you're one of the co-founders of Roll20. We've already uh, talked about that a little bit. Is that your full-time gig? Uh, it is my full-time gig. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you are one of the people who runs Roll20, basically. Uh, And you, so you have sort of achieved the dream of making a living in RPGs.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, dream. (laughs) I do. Uh, It's kind of crazy because it kind of came
7: around. Hey, hey Richard, uh, could you get a little bit more excited about living the dream, please? (laughs) (laughs) For those of us who are not. Let Let me, I'll, let me do it
2: again, let me do it again. That's okay, James. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I have all these users, and they have all these feature requests, <laughs> and uh, bug reports, and uh, everybody, nobody ever has any issues with the software, and it's so,
7: all the time. So- can, I, can I give an example of that? I just want to give one example. So Richard, <laughs> Richard uh, comes to my Wednesday night D&D games, um, and oh, and we had one night where I think it was a snowstorm or something. There was some big issue. And we said, well, let's run on this crazy-ass Roll20 thing, Yeah, you know, and <laughs> So we were running a 13th age game on it and somebody rolled and they rolled like a six and a seven. And, you know, I said something like, you know, well, oh, I, I need to check out whatever your random seed generator is that you're using for your rolls here. And he immediately links me this page that shows like the last a hundred thousand rolls in roll 20 <laughs> and what the is across them. And I'm like, Holy cow. He's like, yeah, we get that question a lot. I was like, man, hard job. <laughs> I mean yeah. people are passionate about their randomness. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so Richard, how did you get your start uh doing this?
2: Uh well like I said earlier, we um we were we were looking to play. So me, um, my my two other co founders, uh Riley is in Kansas City and is in Las Vegas and we just needed we were trying to play with each other. Uh and there's some options out there already, um but they weren't quite, you know, click, you know, click and go, you know, really easy really easy to use, you know. A lot of them were labor intensive to set up, so um, Riley kind of started poking around with some stuff he was already working on. Um, kind of made a prototype pretty quickly, uh, and then we played a couple campaigns, and it was you know, and it was good and go, and you know, everything was fine. And uh, we thought, well, maybe people would be interested in of it. This was back in 2012, so this is back when Kickstarter was just kind of you know being popular. You know, like uh, Monty Cook hadn't done any of his stuff yet. I don't think even like Jackson hadn't done Ogre yet. I mean, this was before the big RPG Kickstarter. So uh, we put ours up there and we made about 36 grand or something like that. Um, so we knew people wanted it. So we just kind of kept working on it little by little and it just kept growing. I mean, like, you know, 100 new users a day, 200 a day, you know, and slowly but surely, you know, people kept coming back. So um, yeah, it took us a long time for us to be our full time jobs. I mean, it took two years for it to be full time. But once it was, I mean, it's been great. I mean, really. I mean, I mean, I can be, you know, critical of their day job because they do it every day, but it is, it's just a dream. Uh, well, Sean Merwin, uh, what is
0: it that you do in this crazy, crazy industry?
4: Well, I'm I'm kind of the anti-Mike Shea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, like, like Mike, I, I have a day job. So what I'm doing is, is my hobby. But whereas most uh, people these days kind of come into it via blogging, podcasting, you know, creating content, and then moving uh, forward from there. I started long enough ago where there wasn't really blogging or podcasting. So it just started with organized play. Um, I started creating content and editing adventures and, and uh, administering campaigns for Wizards. And then from there, I was able to get other uh, work with Wizards, some freelance work, and then on to other companies as well. My real job is very business intensive and, uh, you know, project management oriented. So I don't want to do all that kind of marketing business side of things when it's the hobby. I just kind of want to sit down and create games and write. So I try to surround myself with people who enjoy doing that business work (laughs) Uh, and, you know, to try to make a little cash off of it.
0: Totally. Totally. And, you know, you also mentioned you do the Down with D&D podcast, um, which is always great to hear you on. And uh, like you said, you have a a full time job as well. And I think if people want to hear more about your origins, we will link the Gamer to Gamer podcast uh, that you did. Um, But it is it is true. You've been doing this for a while now. uh, So it is great to have you on here and get your perspective as well. Uh, Neil Powell. Um, Neil, you are uh, someone I'm particularly interested in because you have a large presence in the podcasting world. What is it that you do in this crazy RPG industry?
6: I talk and hope people like listening to the things I say. <laughs> the weird medium that is podcasting where you don't get to see anyone right as you're doing it. But So, like you said, mainly it's the Dungeon Masters Block podcast. Specifically, my... Part in there is DMnastics, the gym for Dungeon Masters to work out their minds. I really don't know how to say one without saying the other immediately after. <laughs> As most of the panel, I have a day job, which I'm currently sitting at talking to you. But day job's over. Now it's time for podcasting right after. the, I, I got my start by just being on their forums and being extremely active. And I think at this point I still represent... Probably 15% of all posts on the forums reached out and tried to as genuinely as possible say I was willing to do anything that they needed, and they took me up on it, and here we are. I edit probably half or so of the content, and then I'm on the main show, this show, the Tope Show, Roundtable, and anything else I can get my hands on.
0: Totally, totally. And I totally understand that. That's exactly how I started doing this podcast. I reached out to Jeff Greiner um, and said, I want more D&D news. Let me make it. And he said, okay, that is uh, a story that is certainly near and dear to my
6: own heart. Also throw out the more applicable information that I may have is that I have a business degree and a master's in business. So hopefully... That will help me join this conversation.
0: <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, and you—you know—you're part of one of the most successful D and D podcasts out there. Um, you know, you—you you actually have an Audible sponsorship on some of your Dungeon Masters block episodes. True. And that is true. You guys have a, a pretty. Nice sizable Patreon campaign rolling, which again, we'll link in the show notes. Um, so, you know, I think uh, certainly having you as part of that empire uh, will help people who are maybe interested in some other areas of the RPG industry, not just design. Uh, same reason we have Richard here. He's living the dream uh, and he is uh, not necessarily a game designer professionally.
2: Um, right. So- yeah, I mean, I do, I mean, I, I handle, I'm, I'm an accountant. That's all I do. I put numbers around. Um, oh, you're so much
0: more than an accountant. Buddy.
2: <laughs> I mean, really I mean, really. Like, I, I don't, I don't write. That's not what I do. I don't make copy. I don't write copy. That's no one's job. <laughs> 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 so uh, let's get right into it because I think uh,
0: you know I have friends who are actors. I have friends who are trying to make it as television writers. I have friends who are in all sorts of industries that are hard to break into. We have people here who are kind of known in the industry. Why is it so difficult to make a living in role-playing games? And that's sort of what we're gonna unpack, but let's get the general overview now. Uh, Mike Shea, why is it so
7: hard to make a full-time living in role-playing games? I mean, that's hard without having done it, right? But I, I, you know, if I so, I, I think a lot of it is, you know, we have to guess, we have to guess at it, because I don't know that we have like enough data to, to, to really understand the full scope of it. You know, it, it could, it could very well be that there is, uh there's just not enough money flowing into the whole hobby to be able to support more than the people it's supporting now. Um I think there's a lot of new avenues for people to make money at it. But, you know, making a living, I mean, if you're going to, you know, the median, the median salary in the United States is $50,000 a year. So if you're going to make $50,000 a year doing this, you know, that's, a, I mean, people are getting five or six cents a word. <laughs> I can't do math, but that sounds like a lot of words that you'd have to write. Uh, what is that? Five million words? Yeah. Do I have that right? So, you know, uh, that's not tenable. So So, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's generally speaking that the money you know if you were to look at the whole thing as a giant pool of money that's going into the rpg industry i just don't think there's a lot of it there and if there's not a lot of it there it's only going to be able to support so many people full time
0: right right so so one reason is there you know we this may be a big world to people who think about it all the time but in actuality there really aren't that many people paying into the hobby
7: um, yeah, right and i mean how many how many Right. You know, how many people does it actually take? There's a lot of kind of good sort of articles about that kind of, you know, talk around this. There was a oh, somebody else is going to is, is, is going to know this better than I. But there's a whole thing about the long tail about how do you you know, how can you support yourself off of a thousand true fans? You know, if you if you you know, if you make enough stuff and you manage to squeeze a thousand true fans out of it. And then from that one thousand true fans, you have a thousand ten thousand fans that are kind of into what you're doing. You know, and you're able to continue to make products to be able to sell to them. Well, then you could actually make a living, but it's pretty hard for any single person in this in this industry. Uh, aside from the ones that we, you know, that we all kind of know, uh, to be able to have that thousand true fans and ten thousand, you know, casual fans. Those are those are big numbers for for this hobby. I think. Yeah, I think you're
0: absolutely right. And I, you know, when you look at it, what it's a twenty-five million dollar industry. Which is not a very large industry at all. But even so, when you look at what that is compared to, like trading cards or even just board games, uh, it is small. It is a fraction of what those things make, and those things I wouldn't consider like super huge money makers all the time. So yeah, I, I do wonder if if you're right. Like it is a small industry, and so many people want to be part of the professional world. It just there's there's not that kind of support for it. Uh, Sean Merwin, what do you think? Why is it so difficult to make money in role-playing games?
4: Well, I think you guys hit the nail on the head for the biggest issue, which is it's just not big, that big an industry. Um, I, if we want to go beyond that, I think that what we're seeing is whereas people who... People will spend take their family out to a movie and spend $50 for... You know, three tickets and popcorn, but will cry if they have to spend three dollars for a five hour event uh, in the RPG world. And when that sort of, uh, you know, that sort of value is placed on one thing over another, it's very hard to uh, make <laughs> make much money if the product that you're producing isn't valued higher by the people consuming it.
0: Yeah yeah I think you're right that it is one of those things where people look at fifty dollars for a book and all of a sudden you know their their head spins especially when maybe you need to buy three fifty dollar books to make a, a core set but yeah, if they're going out to a fancy dinner they don't think twice about dropping that much money you know um, mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's a that's a great great point maybe part of it is the mentality needs to shift a little bit uh, for
7: consumers um yeah
0: I don't know that it will, though, will it? I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, how would you,
7: how, you know, we could, yeah, not to, not to jump deep into it, but it's like we've, you know, we can all argue that, you know, six cents a word, my dad got six cents a word writing stuff in 1970, you know, it hasn't changed in 50 years, but uh, is is it likely to, you know, we can hem and haw and kind of scrunch our fists together, but I don't think, you know, if the mark, it's, uh, Neil, you're, you said you're the, you're an MBA yep right what will the market bear is what's going to happen right
6: yeah well i mean it's it's kind of like you said the supply and demand i mean it's the easiest model by which we could have this discussion and you're talking about the days of your dad and him getting paid six cents but think of how much more difficult it was to get your product out there
7: oh sure in the
6: 70s and now i mean especially with the dms guild how many people can get their stuff out there just went through the roof. And so now six cents, I mean, that's just the price of doing business because you have so many people that can just jump on board right now instantaneously.
7: Which increases supply.
6: And the other thing is like you'd, the example of a movie, well, the next movie is probably going to come out next week and you're going to go pay that same price. But if I were to purchase as a perfect example the fantastic locations, which I totally helped kickstart. Um, yeah Fantastic Locations. <laughs> but how much use how many times can I use that? And how much use can I get out of that book? Or if oh, I, yeah. I or for the full suite I dropped the full full retail price one fifty for all three books. Do I even really need to go buy anything else for the next year because I have the players handbook, the DMG, and the
4: monster manual? I mean, well, when I was making the movie comparison, I was thinking specifically of uh, issues where game stores are running a four-hour adventure that you can come to once a week. Different adventure right. every week. And the players were coming and playing for free for four hours. And then the, the game stores were saying, well, we need to cover some costs. Would you chip in two bucks each, all, all our players, to pay for this four-hour event? You know, two dollars. And the hue and cry was fierce. Huh. And so, you know, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about, uh, you know, the the okay. value placed on an experience is not the same and it won't, you know, grow the industry unless that value is seen as more valuable.
0: Well, let's, um, you know, Richard, I actually want to turn to you because the the cost of entry for Roll20 is free. Um, you do not need to pay anything to use the game table. You can bring in your own maps. Um, you can bring in your own miniatures. You can search from a library of free maps and minis to use it. Um, you you guys have a really really low bar to entry for people to use this, and yet now you have a staff of what eight eight people?
2: Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's the other staff. So. <laughs>
0: So how is it that you have sort of cracked this code of you you have a product, it's great for playing role-playing games, people can access it for free, and yet uh, they are paying to use it. And obviously when you pay to use Roll20, you get a lot of really, really awesome, amazing extra features, and everybody should pay to use it because it's an amazing service. Uh,
2: yeah, we give a lot of stuff away for free, but that's just to get people on the hook, more or less. I mean... <laughs> Once people are playing their games in Roll20, you know, they've, they've, they've five, six sessions in, you know, and then, you know, they're kind, of, they're kind of doing the same thing and they want to try something new. Well, instead of, you know, taking, going, trying a different software, all they got to do is give us, you know, five bucks a month and they can try a whole suite of features that they hadn't had options. So it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's, it's value building. You know what I mean? I mean, it's the time they've invested already, you know, we're kind of mortgaging that. You know, into their future investments that they're going to pay us, um, and so far it's been good. Somebody had mentioned that we need to change the mindset of the consumer, and I think that's probably pretty true. I mean, I feel like people won't pay—they won't pay for something they can get. And we knew people wouldn't pay for Roll Twenty; they won't—they wouldn't give us a ton of money upfront just to use, just to play with each other. I mean, they expect—if they can do it in person—they expect that that same um, experience to be free online. They just do. I mean, how many of us, we have free Skype accounts, we have free email, we have free messengers. I mean, you know, there's tons of software that's great that we don't pay for. You know, so the people just expect that. Um, so to get them to, 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 to poke over their credit card, we really had to make those experiences specific for, you know, the online experience. So dynamic lighting, um, ABI, custom API scripts, you know, it, it took a while. I mean, when we when we first started, I mean, we gave everything away for free. We had our marketplace. We thought people would just, you know, give us money and and everything would be fine and dandy. But I mean, there was a debate on Twitter. I know Michael attested to this, where
7: you said something that the that the
2: art art prices were too high. <laughs> or that
7: conversation, I think, is what spawned yeah, yeah. this this conversation.
2: Yeah. Right. Right. Well, was that that oh, the prices were too steep, and you weren't saying that.
7: I didn't uh, say it was You weren't Tuesday saying Tuesday that they were charging
2: too much. Right, right. And you weren't saying the artist was charging too much. You were no. saying the art is expensive. It's probably fact. not paying enough. And, you know, right. Yeah, they're, they're charging with their worth for the art, and, and writers should be paid with their worth for their words. I mean, I don't think six cents a word is enough, but. People
0: feel so lucky to get anything uh, uh, and any kind of job you can pay six cents a word uh, yeah. i saw this a lot when i was working at a theater um you know and they would hire actors and what they paid actors was you know uh, uh, almost <laughs> almost poverty uh, essentially and i think that it, do you think there's a little bit of that going on too um that like hey you know we can only afford to pay this much but it's also because people will accept this much that that's why the
2: six cents word has never changed. Oh, uh, I mean, as, I mean, like I said, I'm not a writer. Mm-hmm. I've never sold anything for six cents a word. Uh, I, in my opinion, I feel that if somebody is passionate about, they want to be a professional at it, there should be a way. I mean, I think DM's Guild is a step in the right direction. Obviously, I think everybody on this podcast has their own issues with it. I think <laughs> uh, certain aspects of it. Oh, which is I mean, which is fine. I mean, I don't think there's no perfect solution, but I mean, it seems ridiculous, right? that I mean somebody who can who makes who can make good content professionally can't get that easily to people who want to consume it and be able to make a living up.
0: yeah, I mean, Mike Mike and Sean, what do you guys think? I know this is the it's the industry standard. It totally makes sense. I definitely take those word rates as well. Um, you know, uh, I was recently offered, you know, somebody told me was like, Hey, this is a premium word rate. And it was five cents a word. Uh, and Mm I, you know, for somebody who has as few credits to their name as me, that is a premium word rate for this industry. It's certainly in other industries, it seems like the starting rate is like 10 cents a word, which is kind of the top, top, top you can make in role-playing games. Do you guys think that if there were some sort of, uh... I don't know, role playing game designers union that that would <laughs> kind of change things.
7: I I don't know. I mean, what what's interesting now is I think the models even working away from that. Um I think you could, you know, now that there is a DM's guild, I'd be I'd be surprised. First of all, now that when when Wizards uh shifted over from 4e to 5e, uh I I, I you know, again, I don't have specific metrics, but I'd heard more than a few veteran designers who had written a lot for Wizards directly, um, who just didn't, didn't see the same kind of work coming to them from Wizards directly for Wizards products, because they're putting out a lot fewer products now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, DDI, you know, DDI kind of went away. A lot of the digital, the, the, you know, Dungeon and Dragon magazine went away. And, um, a lot of the articles for that kind of kind of went away along with them and then the DM skill comes out and it's a whole new model for how wizards can sort of, you know, generate content. Um right. and you know, now now it's not even a 6 cents a word rate. It's a, you know, right. you you make something and you put it up and you <laughs> might you might make some money. <laughs> right. And right. you might make significantly more than 6 cents a word, you know, or you, you might and I this is this is I think what what I worry about is what's the perception of how much one might make? what's the reality of it? And I don't, I don't know yet. And I don't know, you know, a few people, um, I know Teos, Teos Abadia put up a post where he talked about uh, um, his, uh, uh, you know, the Iron Chef adventure that he wrote. And um, a couple of other people have talked about it on what the actual numbers of sales are. I just did some quick, you know, napkin math here. And uh, it looks like in order to make six cents a word, on a ten thousand word adventure sold at fi- at five dollars on our on uh, DMs Guild, you'd need two hundred and forty people to buy it, which isn't an unreasonable number of people. But that for some people that might actually be really hard to get. Oh, sure. Um, I mean
0: that makes so, you uh, that puts you close to the Electrum bestseller numbers. Two sixty-five, <laughs> uh, I think, is the Electrum bestseller number. Uh, I have yeah. one product that has been uh, an Electrum bestseller, uh, which I right. feel very, very
7: fortunate to have. But it's a pay what you want, so yeah. Uh, so that means the, dollar, the the money's what percentage of people actually paid less than ten? But it's yeah. yeah, it's less than ten. Yeah, um, I mean, I have so I have my my Adventure Aeon Wave up on Drive Through RPG, and I just pay what you want. Um, and yeah, I think it's like 20 or 30 to one that pay. And when they pay, it's like a dollar or two. It's pretty low for what I can see, like a $10, a $10 adventure. (laughs) And at the, you know, at the time of recording this,
0: there are 21 Electrum bestsellers, six gold and two platinum, uh, for a total of less than 2% of all the products on the DS.
7: Yeah. So that's what I mean. Like, you know, what, what I think, you know, if, if, you know, the the one message I think is really important for writers is is for writers who are writing in this in this area is to it's to really understand what the realities are of of what's gonna happen. And the reality is it's really hard. Like A, it's fantastic now because now you don't have to wait for a, a giant corporate, you know, office building filled with old rich white guys who are gonna decide what you can publish. You now get to publish what you want and put it up there. And that's <laughs> awesome right? that's really really fantastic but the flip side is you also have a ton of competition and now you got to figure out how to deal with that competition too and for a lot of people there's they're, they're not going to be able to break through that competition
4: but and another another issue with all of this is where is the most money made in an RPG cycle it's made with the yeah, the, the, books books, yeah. the core books right uh, and then after that not even the big publishers can make as much money on the peripheral uh, things. And so unless you're writing one of those core rule books for something, you're even getting a smaller percentage of a small percentage of a small percentage. Uh, So, and, and even, I think the, the margins that the, these even the biggest companies make is so small that if they tried to pay more than six cents a word, they yeah, right. probably, they, they might go
7: broke. Yeah,
4: th- that's exactly right.
0: So, yeah, there's definitely many things at work here, right? It's and, and But it does kind of come down to the industry is small and they can only spend so much money to do what they're doing. Um, Neil, what about uh, on the media side of things? Um, you know, going after things like sponsorships and Patreon pages, that kind of stuff, uh, you know, DMs block – does a lot of really, really good work with their Patreon patrons um, and giving shout-outs to people and getting them involved and recording extra podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Is all of that extra work uh, worth it?
6: Sure. Well, (laughs) so we can start (laughs) off with the forward-facing numbers. Like, I'm not going to tell you anything you guys couldn't find out for yourself. So currently, the DM's Block Patreon brings in $354 a month. A decent amount of that goes to equipment, goes to maintaining everything. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's the biggest cost that we've had, is trying to make sure and get up enough of a nest egg to buy more and better equipment so that we can bring the highest quality audio that we can. It's being split, essentially, between multiple people. So, I mean, it's not this exorbitant amount of money and by no means do I plan on quitting my day job. The, <laughs> the thing is like making the Patreon, you said, is that extra work worth it? And I think it is more towards what got mentioned earlier and trying to create that hunt, that not hundred thousand really core fans. Mm-hmm. Cause if you can get them on board, mm-hmm. hopefully they can get other people on board and essentially I think a lot of people that would look at the DMs Guild or look at podcasting, and I would wager to say that have gone on the DMs Guild and have started podcasts, don't realize that they've stepped into the entertainment business. Because that's <laughs> what this is. Like, I, there's no long and short of it. Like, as someone who's trying to make a podcast, you've become an entertainer. If you're not entertaining, your podcast isn't good. If the articles you write, if the supplements you do, aren't entertaining, then they're not going to sell, regardless of what medium you use to try and do that. That's just how I view
0: it. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. You have to have a good product, and I think Mike touched on this too. You have to have consistency. You can't put out something, you know, once every – you know 6 months and expect people to be on board and uh, your audience to grow. Uh, I think that that's definitely a a huge huge part of it. You have to be willing to work your tail off. Um but this is, you know, this is a podcast full of people who work their tail off definitely. Uh so it's it's really really interesting. I think one thing I would want to talk about is what do you guys see as some of the best ways then to make money for people to show their appreciation out there? I think we've touched on the fact that gone are kind of the days of sitting around waiting for Wizards of the Coast to give you a contract. Now there's, there's all these better ways. There's crowdfunding, there's the DMs Guild, there's RPG Now, there's Setting up your own uh, sales through your own website. There's all kinds of really, really good stuff. There's going after sponsorships and advertisements, uh, you know, placing those on your blog or your podcast or whatever. Um, You know, what do we think are some of the best ways? and What do we think are some of the not so... Great ways, uh, and I think you know. I just did a kind of in-depth analysis on my own blog about the DM's Guild because I've got a lot of products there, and I love that you're able to access some of the wizards' IP there. You know, you can write about Mindflares if you want. You can write in the Forgotten Realms. They just added Ravenloft. They're going to be highlighting different products, and then they will be voted on in the surveys. Um, you know, and and if people like them enough, they're going to become official Watsy products or they're going to be integrated into them and that kind of thing. Um, you know, very, very cool stuff is happening with the DMs Guild. So I'm probably going to continue to put stuff on there for that reason. But as a money maker, it is really not a great way to make money. Could it lead to other opportunities? Maybe, um... But it, it just seems like right now that fifty-fifty split is too much of a cut, and I certainly understand. You know, they need to get their cut; they need to pay their people too. Uh, that website is not free to run, um, but uh, but fifty percent seems like it is. It is really a hard hit um, for a lot of people. So you really have to be starting out and view it as like a this is a hobby, and this is me putting this out into the world, uh, at least at the moment that could certainly change and people could catch on and it could catch on like gangbusters. Mike, uh, what do you think? What do you think are some great ways to make money? And what do you think are some not so great ways?
7: Uh, so you know how I feel about advice, right? <laughs> you, I know you, I know you and I have discussed this before. Yes. Yeah, of course. Uh, of course. I think advice is BS. Uh, mostly because I think each of us have our own, our, our own paths that we that we follow and that we see. And for some of us, it works really well. And for other people it might not work so well. And other people are going to come up with entirely new paths that if they followed our advice, they wouldn't follow and, <laughs> you know, might do really poorly. So I'll, I'll talk about what, what's worked, what, what I found that's worked for me mm-hmm. sharing an experience rather than offering advice. Totally. Um, totally. So I, have I've always found it, you know, a start the, the, for me, it was, it was always trying to start by writing, by writing good content, you know, by what's, What's, what's something interesting that people want to actually read? How do you make it valuable for other people? I really, you know, I think about this pretty hard whenever I'm writing something is how is this useful to someone else's life? Um, And then I'd say that kind of recognizing one of the things I try to do is recognize that I'm part of a much bigger community that I don't try to be the center of of the universe for anything and instead try to recognize that there's lots and lots and lots of really smart people that are also making really great stuff. How do you how do you build off of that? There's just like this, you know, like I really love all being on the tome show because i I get to, you know, be with all of you awesome folk. And, you know, I wouldn't want to make a competing podcast because you know why would i do so right like you right, guys clearly right. got this um so being part but i think being part of the community being really active in the community talking to folks about this stuff you know asking questions listening to the answers is, has been very beneficial to me um i've really found a lot of advantage in 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 finding a finding a niche and sticking to it uh except when it doesn't work and then figuring out how to you know what are the kids calling it these days pivoting right mm-hmm. um that good, you know yep. if i if i stuck to offering advice for fourth edition dungeon masters i have a feeling my stuff's going to dry up really quick <laughs> so, I mean, but and in some but in some cases i wonder like wow should i just really stick to and i am playing 13th age and i'd like to write about that but general gming advice you know there's a lot of people that write some really good general gming advice and now am i just throwing my own stuff into that giant pool and it'll get all swallowed up by the other by the by other really you know other big fish that are that are writing in that area um that's something i struggle with and still struggle with you know i should i stick to just writing fifth edition dungeon De- you know dungeon master stuff or you know should i branch out and it's and it's a it's a tricky thing to to, to work on um i, I think things that probably so there's a couple things i don't think would work there are things that i've kind of drawn a line on for myself one is i i think you know i don't want to wait around to be discovered Mm-hmm. right I don't want to wait around and, and I, ha- I didn't wait around to be discovered I didn't say like oh one day genius will be recognized by the old rich white guys in the giant corporate tower and they'll you know they'll call me and they'll send me the MacArthur genius grant and I can write D&D for the rest of my life <laughs> um the uh so so the idea and I've heard a lot of people I've gotten emails from people saying how do you you know how do you get wizards to recce and I'm not just saying wizards are a bunch of corporate." Old rich white guys in a big corporate tower. That's a general, right? You know, right. A general discussion. But uh, you know, how do I get wizards to see my stuff? And Chris Perkins answers these questions all the time, right? Like, how do I? You know, I write awesome stuff. How do I get you guys to see it? Well, don't wait for them to see it. Just put it out. You know, like you do, right? Put it out there and just just make awesome stuff and and make it interesting and useful and unique. And and you don't don't do it with the intention that one day somebody important will discover. You do it for the five people who you know aren't quote unquote important, but love what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I've, I've found that to be useful. And the other thing that I've, that I'm always really wary of, and I think I brought it up on other episodes of this too, is uh, giving away, you know, giving away stuff and, mm-hmm. and, and doing stuff, you know, I'm, I'm saying it you know, for free, but I don't quite mean it that way. And the, GM, the DMs Guild is one area where I'm kind of squinting, squinting my eyes a little bit. <laughs> when I'm talking about it away, I mean like you lose stuff that you give away. Right. Um, you know, like if, if you write an article and you put it on your blog and you give it away as in people can go get it for free, that's still yours. And you can take it and turn it into something that you can put up on a website or you decide I'm going to package this together and sell on a book or I'm going to have a guy read it aloud and make an audiobook out of it. You know, you still own that and you can still do what you want with it. You can transform it. You can do a lot of stuff. But there's groups that will, you know, buy your work or or say, I'll, you know, we, you write for us and we'll put it on our website, but it's our material now and you'll get exposure and that'll be good for you. And now you've lost what you wrote. You don't have control over it. You can't transform it. You can't turn it into a big book. You know, you kind of lose your own ability to do something with this, and and what worries me about the DMs Guild is, is, it's a little bit like that. You know, there's this kind of discussion that they, that you still own your material, but you kind of don't because you wrote it about the Forgotten Realms, and you can't go sell that on your website now. Mm-hmm. In fact, if I recall, you, you know, if you write for the DMs Guild, really, yeah,
2: you can't, yeah.
7: Right. If you write for the DMs Guild, uh, I don't. I think you have to basically sign a thing or the equivalent of signing a thing that says that you're not and won't ever sell that anywhere else but the DM's Guild. Exactly.
0: Even if you pull the PDF down from the DM's Guild, you still have given away the rights. Yeah. Which is that's the other thing. At the cost of the fifty-fifty, right?
7: Um, is, is yeah. So that 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 to me is a pretty stiff price. Now they're still paying you, so I'm not against it. You know, it's like if you were giving it away. You know, if you were giving it away and and they weren't, you know, you weren't getting anything for it, and you had that—that's really bad, right? You're like, you know, you're just doing work for somebody else's benefit. So at least with DM skill, you have the opportunity. You have the the opportunity is there to make money. You could get two hundred forty people to buy your your adventure, and you'll you'll earn you know you earn money from that, and that's you know. That's that that that's a a fine way to go. I think it's important that people kind of recognize what the risks are. A, it's you know roughly twenty percent less than you would normally get if you sold it in an RPG now, and you lose you you basically sign away exclusive rights to that site forever. And you know, and this sounds very kind of money grabby. I'm sorry to get Randy, I'll shut up here. No, no,
0: about. but that's what we're talking about. You know,
5: we're <laughs> money <laughs> grabby. It's
7: um you know it sounds money grabby right and 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 i have it i know i lean towards the idea of like the businessy side of this and i've and it's been it's been working out for me very well you know i have a whole different mix of ways that income come in from this and and it's nice it pays for my hobby mm-hmm. um again i not won't make a living on it but it you know it, it, i'm 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 very happy with how it's worked out and so i so i tend to lean that direction but you know and there's lots of people who say like well i don't do it and i think i've heard wizards say this you know you shouldn't be doing it for the money anyway you should doing it because you love this and that's true except somebody else might be getting money from it too right (laughs) you know this isn't a non-for-profit industry you're not you know we're not volunteering to Mm. to save dogs we there are corporations that are making money from this they they really say that yeah yeah (laughs) i I, somebody i forget and you know i don't want to pick on them because, because they sometimes give me money. But, <laughs> but Wizards, uh, I think somebody at Wizards of the Coast wrote a tweet and somebody was kind of nit- niggling about how to make money on the thing. And and the, the, the person was basically saying like, Hey, I want to make a lot of money writing D and D. How do I do that? And they were saying, okay. well, D and D should be writing because you love what you do. And again, yeah. that's true. Yeah. You know, but what you don't want to do is have somebody say you should, you know, you, you should do this because you love it. And that means I get to profit off it. Not you.
0: Mm-hmm.
7: Right. And that, that's a, you know, to me, that's a uh, an area that it's easy to fall into, particularly if you're just getting started and you think you're going to get a leg up because you're willing to sign away stuff. Don't no,
0: worry. I mean this was this was great. This was a, a super super good look inside of the brain of Mike Shea and the Mike Shea experience. Um, And I think all the points you made are really, really smart and well-informed. So thank you for sharing that with us uh, because uh, it certainly opened my eyes to a lot of different things. And I think you're right. One of the big things is, if you're putting a lot of time and energy into creating something, it does help if you retain those rights for some sort of future use, you know. And so there, there is that risk of doing things like putting it on the DMs Guild or uh, selling your work for very cheap or for giving it away to some place for free, um, to to only to find like, oh man, I I could have done something with that that would have actually made me a little scratch. Uh, is is always disappointing to find out, you know? Um, so I,
7: yeah, in, in that case, is not even just about making scratch? It's about like I might want to just put it out there so other people can see it, right? Um, I, I've had articles where you know I got and, and I got paid, I got paid six cents a word, and I knew what I was getting into. But uh, you know, shorter articles that I wrote and uh, I sent them in, and they got edited, and there was like, well, there's not really a theme for this, so we're not going to publish it. But we bought it, so it's ours, and you can't publish it anywhere else. And now it's dead. And I'm like, okay, well, I made 120 bucks, so that's not nothing. But I don't, you know, now I've got this dead article, right? Like I, <laughs> I, I worked harder than $120 to make that thing, and no one is ever going to see it again, you know? And that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. But again, that one I'm not even upset about because that that's, that's the deal, and I, I accepted it. Right, right.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's totally, totally true uh richard what do you think are some good ways versus uh some you know not as great ways to make money in this crazy industry and i think i would uh start by pointing out the roll 20 marketplace
2: i'll say i've never looked at it from the writer's point of view i've only known the plight of the artist Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean we let our marketplace creators retain all their rights they want to sell it on our They can sell the personal site they can do whatever they want with it um you know we do a 70 30 split and it's funny back in when we first started the marketplace Basically, I mean, we created it as like a companion to the tabletop. I mean, obviously, if people were playing all their games online. They needed art assets, easy, you know, art assets. So, mm-hmm. um, we we commissioned, like Mike was talking about, instead of commissioning articles, we commissioned art packs uh, from artists. You know, we paid them, and then we put it, and then we sold them on the, the site. Um, and then after a while, we we're like, you know, we can't just, you know, <laughs> this is gonna have a losing venture for us, um, you know. So we needed artists to create their own. Uh, and luckily, we got some really good artists early on that have been with us since the beginning, um, and it's kind of grown from there. So, now we have about a hundred, uh, about a hundred artists now on the marketplace that make wow. uh, tokens, maps, tokens, maps. Even people do like spell spell designs, you know, traps or like little encounter bundles. Right. So it's really kind of evolved from where it started. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's it's kind of taken on a life of its own. I mean, we have we have some creators that just they're just so popular. I mean, they they just they have their own little fan base, the Roll Twenty world. You know, I mean, you would nobody would know them <laughs> else, but on you know our forums or you know anywhere else, people are just they love their stuff. I mean, they they create their stuff specifically for Roll Twenty for the interface, um, and they just I mean, and they're great. I mean, we've seen I think um, people get into a, a, a kind of a collector's mentality mm-hmm. when it comes with their their art um, collections, which I'm sure a lot of people do. I know I do. I like to buy. DVDs that all have the same, you know, the Criterion Collection or, like, all the hardcover Harry Potter books. I mean, people like an artist, they, they'll buy all their packs so that they can mix and match for different sessions for their, you know, they, they want the they want the, the dragons from the same artist so they match their hobgoblins so they match their ogres, you know, so that when they, you know, so it's, it's crazy to see it. Um, if you're an artist, I would recommend you emailing us to get on our marketplace. <laughs> uh, the writer... How do we get writers know, in there, man? <laughs> I listen to everything Mike said. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some well, writing I, on
7: Roll20.
0: I mean, you can sell modules, right? On Roll20. You can sell modules, yeah. yeah. Sure. So, and then um, with the OGL, you could uh, you yeah. can do that. So you just can, need to own all of the modules. art that you use as well, which that's the, the real role. Right,
7: right? Yeah, I'm really uh, sorry to dip- jump in again, but I got that two, two, two quick things that I wanted to pile on on, on what? what uh, Richard said and that I think might might be interesting. And one is that when you look at something like Roll20, it it's sort of like expanded the the range of the hobby, right? Like Roll20, I mean there are other sort of online, you know, gaming platforms, but most of them are really thick client and 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 you know, are certainly not free, at least to you know, they're not free to start. And you know, when you look at something like Roll20, he basically if you if you have that entire pool of the industry and a lot of us are writing the same sort of stuff that lots of people have been writing for you know forty years. You know, with Roll 20, they went in a completely different direction. They expanded the whole sort of area. And I think that's, you know, I mean I'm, I'm kinda of guessing here, but it feels like that's that's why it's been as successful as it has. Because it's something that never existed. I would say like in the first I mean, like in the first six months,
2: it was people it was it was people who played D and D or you know, RPGs, not D&D specifically, RPGs online would use other virtual tabletops, or they played play by post, or they use Google Hangouts. So people who other, you know, hobby enthusiasts who were looking for a solution to play online. And then after we got most of those people, I would say, um, we started getting people who only played in person and started looking for a digital tool. Uh, and then after that, we started getting just people who, you know, the first time they ever Roll to die was in Roll20. I mean, it was just, we they, they, they introduced a lot of people into the hobby, I think. I mean, that was the only thing that would make sense because we continue to get 1,200 new users a day. I mean, like you said, there aren't that many people playing the game unless they're new people going to the hobby. Right. So, right. Um, um, and not a lot of them stick around. I'm not saying all
7: those people stick around, but they come, they check us out. There's there's one other kind of interesting sort of expansion of the hobby area that I've been watching, and this is a, a you know not not really a recent one. It's actually something that's been around for a long time, but it sort of shows that maybe there's more money in this pool than we thought. Is uh, the whole dwarven forge, uh, uh, you know, the dwarven forge kickstarters and the dwarven forge business? Again, a small business with people that do it full time, mm-hmm, um, sure, building building three D terrain. And, you know, I've been watching the new Dwarven Forge Castles Kickstarter, and what I found particularly interesting about that is if you look at the um, the pledges that are available and the number of people that backed a pledge, like the cheapest one is a gatehouse one, that, which still costs 65 bucks and has 12 backers. Um, but then you, you look through how many people are backing it, and it's like 56 and 32 and 40. You know, the one I backed was 41 people. And then you get to the... The biggest one, which is nine hundred and eighty dollars, and four hundred and fifty-nine people backed it. Right? So, right? And all of us are like, "Whoa!" But the idea that (laughs) ten times as many people backed the highest cost one, which is almost a grand. My first car costs a grand, (laughs) right? And and I mean, I'm not, I'm not certainly not mocking them. You know,
2: sure, Richard Richard has
7: seen. Oh no, I
2: mean, it's like, um, it's like, it's like Apple. I mean, they they make the best product for, for their you know, they don't yeah. need to get they don't need to get the whole market share. They just need to get right. their piece <laughs> of it, you know, and right. then they got it. I mean they I mean they yeah, they got sure. I, mean, I mean it's, it's obviously it's, worth I mean it's obviously it, worth that. I mean, well right
7: well, they've had four successful Kickstarters. The consumer knows it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the idea that like they got more than a quarter million dollars, they got three hundred thousand dollars from you know, like 250 people yeah. or, or yes. roughly a thousand each. Right. So they got, you know, they got a lot of money from not a lot of people. Yeah. Now, also, a lot of that money is going straight into, you know, manufacturing. So it's not let her sit on a and giant stuff. pile of gas I mean, on digital
2: like, products. A lot of it goes right to Amazon and the other half to
7: taxes. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they do it full time. Um, so I, I, I just, that to me, that's the sort of thinking of how the whole pool can get expanded yeah you know it's right. not a thick, and, then, and that's cool. the thing i mean people the thing i would spend the most money on would be
2: pre-written adventures just because i don't have time to prepare that stuff but i guess people that do have the time to prepare their own adventures you know they want to spend their money on you know the dungeon running in, You know, mm-hmm. or you know things like, things like that so they're definitely a, I, i've come to learn at least nobody plays the game the same even if it's game <laughs> even if you're at the same table I mean, everybody plays their game differently or wants to play differently.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 very true. Everybody does want to play their game differently. Um, you know, and I think people are willing to... People accept, probably because of buying miniatures for years and miniatures were always kind of expensive, I think people accept, like, oh, okay, when I go to buy some, some awesome miniatures, that's going to cost me a ton of money. But... I can get a great rule set for 25 bucks, you know, so, uh, when I pick up Fate Core, right? So, uh, I shouldn't have to pay more than that for a great rule set, but I will pay tons of money for a modular castle, uh, if, uh, if that's what it costs down to. Neil, uh, what do you think are some good ways to make money in this industry? What is your, your business, uh, knowledge telling you?
6: Build a castle. That's what it told me right now in the past five minutes. <laughs> Good Lord, I could buy f- four of my first car. Um, <laughs> holy cow. I mean, it's just not... in For me personally, that's just terrain like that. It's just something I've never played with. So hearing that is just mind numbing. I know there's the classic phrase, it's who you know. I personally am of the mind that that's wrong. It's who knows you. Mm. Um, if you're know, in the... <laughs> The proverbial old white guys in said tower know who you are, but you don't know who they are. You still win. I mean, if they're going to find out your stuff. So getting out there and getting known is imperative for you wanting to sell stuff because you can crank out 500 or a thousand words all day, every day. But if nobody knows your, you or your content, then it's going to be hard pitching that. I mean honestly, if you look at the number of people that have which is still weird to think about, but if you think of the number of people that have heard my voice, despite not having written and published a single thing, I'll have an advantage over someone that has not done a podcast. That's just the long and the short of it. Like there's no like I can I easily have uh, I don't know. Well, I don't know how much numbers I should tell you, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> no, you you can do the math again because the um, pod bean has our plays. So, I mean, you're talking thousands of people or thousands of plays per episode mm-hmm. for the Dungeon Masters block. So theoretically, I could reach thousands of people if I were to publish something and mention it on a podcast that doing that sets me up more than anything else. So starting a blog right, is a great way to do it. Starting a podcast and trying to get that out there, going to conventions, any and every convention to get connected to more people in this industry. Cause one, this industry is awesome about great people that you can connect with. The, they people right here talking right now is a great example because the industry is full of passionate people doing what they love because most of us aren't doing it for a living so it needs to be something we love but getting connected to and through this industry is by far and away the most important thing if you're going to try and make some or a ton of money at this that wizards realized that dungeons and dragons can't make as much money as they thought it could (laughs)
0: well i don't know maybe with the with the dungeon masters guild we uh we'll see if everybody can make them a little bit of money that adds up right um i would take 50 percent of all of the sales of the dungeon masters
2: (laughs) (laughs) done perfect i would make a safe bet that they probably make more money on t-shirt sales than i do on.
6: yeah well i mean if you look at how they've shifted everything they've done and how they tried to shift it when they kind of took it over. I mean, granted, the thing they had was magic. Magic just prints money. You print cards, you print money. Yeah, like, uh,
0: totally.
6: but And then thinking that maybe D&D could be that thing and the steps that they've taken away from producing more material and the way they produce it now. I mean, the quality of those books, first off, is astounding. The Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide and everything – But that makes me wonder how much are they really taking or getting from each sale. The fact that they're trying to create a movie franchise now, that they're just branching out more with the Dungeons & Dragons name rather than focusing it on print alone, says a lot to me.
0: Yeah no I think you're absolutely right Right, They're they're looking at the movie They're looking at uh, video games They're looking at stuff like that as well They're trying to create a franchise uh, And capitalize on that So that makes perfect sense Well uh, I think that is going to do it We certainly want to hear from people out there What they think about The RPG business We are going to do a second podcast uh, With a whole bunch of Other people in the industry as well So look forward to hearing from those people at a future date. Mike
7: Shea, where can people find you? Oh, SlyFlourish.com and Twitter.com slash SlyFlourish.
0: Thank you, Mike. Thank you. It is always a pleasure to have you on, sir. Oh,
2: it's always a pleasure to be on. Uh, and Richard Zayas, where can people find you? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Richard Zayas. Um, my website is Rule20.net. <laughs> if you've heard of it, you should go check it out. Um,
4: Absolutely.
2: And I'm also, every Wednesday, 730 I'm usually at Mike's dinner table <laughs> except tomorrow you
0: jerk and Neil Powell where can people find you
6: anymore just keep listening to the Tome Show I'm bound to show back up wait wait no that's not what you meant uh, <laughs> on Twitter if you can follow dms block dms underscore block if you want to follow me personally it's at Jotemaniac and if you want to listen to me you can Google Dungeon Masters Block, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, other things probably. I could maybe email you the episodes. I don't know. We'll we'll see. Sean Merwin, where can people find you?
4: Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. That's the best place. Or you can go to the G Plus community for my podcast down with D&D.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And we will link all of these people's contact information over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. Gentlemen, thank you for being here today. Thank you. Yeah, thank Again. you for having Just so everybody knows, Sean Merwin, who is amazing, had to leave the interview halfway through the cast. That's why I stopped asking him questions and why he stopped responding. We pre-recorded his where can people find you response and through the magic of post, moved him. And before we go, there's a quick final segment we've started doing here on the Roundtable. We're highlighting a different DMs Guild product each week. This week's highlighted product comes from B. Raven Wright. It's called Names for 10 Days. Over 8,000 names for people, places, and things in the Forgotten Realms and beyond. So this product is exactly what you think. Names for 10 Days contains over 8,000 names for PCs, NPCs, ships, inns, cities, and dungeons for use in Forgotten Realms and other similar D&D campaign settings. Never an agonize over what to name your character, tavern, evil twin, NPC, whatever, A resource like this is invaluable to DMs and players alike. The PDF is completely hyperlinked and bookmarked to make searches and navigation super easy. It's only $1 for 8,000 instant names. This is a must-have for lazy DMs. There's a direct link to Names for 10 Days over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. Thanks to my panelists, Alex, Rudy, Greg, Mike, Richard, Neil, and Sean. All right, everyone. You can find me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. You can also check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition world I'm building, over at worldbuilderblog.me. There's a lot of free resources for your 5E games, plus a lot of my DM advice if you find that kind of thing valuable. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. Special thanks to Jeff Griner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was Composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And if you like the show, please rate The Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.